0: Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers.
1: All right. Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Kramer, president and CEO of BSR. I'm delighted you've joined us today for our 10th episode. Uh, we're in double figures of our conversation series ESG Influencers Leading Transformative Change. This is a series that uh, BSR and Morrison Forster have joined forces to present. And we are honored to have another stellar guest with us today, Rama Varian Kaval, who is the Global Head of Corporate Advisory and Sustainable Solutions at JP Morgan. And today's discussion will be focused on how large financial institutions our integrated climate strategies and having just come back from climate week. And for anyone else who was there, you know that there are many topics that are top of mind for people. And this is certainly one of them and will continue to be for the foreseeable future. And certainly in the time between now and COP28 at the end of November. Uh, Rama is, as I said, the global head of corporate advisory and sustainable solutions at J.P. Morgan. This is a group that combines uh, the capabilities of the bank's corporate finance, finance advisory, Center for Carbon Transition, ESG Solutions, and Infrastructure Finance Advisory uh, to help clients achieve long term strategic goals through the delivery of holistic advice, capital market solutions and targeted capital deployment. So from that, you can tell Rama is a very busy person. Um, In this role, he leads the firm's efforts in developing and implementing its Paris aligned financing commitments um, and advising large cap and emerging green economy clients on corporate finance topics in the context of a low carbon transition. He also works in partnership with clients across industries on capital allocation and shareholder value creation strategies as well as other corporate and structured finance solutions. Uh, Rama began his career at J.P. Morgan more than 20 years ago, and he served in many different roles in the firm. He was a founding member of the bank's corporate finance advisory practice and has led this team now for six years, since 2017. He is also a member of the investment banks management team, and he chairs the corporate and investment banks global ESG forum. He's previously served on Commercial Banking's Balance Sheet Committee. In addition to all of the hats that Rama wears, he also has some pretty interesting credentials. He holds a BS in civil engineering from the National Institute of Technology in India and a master's in structural engineering from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and another master's degree in statistics and operations research from NYU. And he is based at the firm's global headquarters uh, in New York. Uh, Rama will be joined this morning for a discussion that will be led by Suze McCormick. Suze is the global chair of the ESG and social enterprise and impact investing practices at MoFo. Uh, So, Suze, Rama, over to you. Take it away.
0: Oh, thanks so much, Aaron. And I, I am thrilled to be joined this morning by Rama. I got to know Rama a number of years ago where I was honored that he asked me to be part of an advisory group for the first uh, sort of sustainable IPO standards, uh, actually with Aaron as well. And so I got to work with him. And quite frankly, I was just really impressed with how thoughtful Rama was and his entire team um, and really how they were taking the world's largest or one of the world's largest financial institutions and this was not just something that they were doing on the side. For those of you who know me, one of my my messages is philanthropic capital is less than a quarter of 1% of the capital market. So how can we solve this huge issue like climate change with just making our money and then giving it away to foundations on the side? It hasn't worked for the past 25 years and things are getting worse and worse. And so I've just Really thrilled that Rama is here to share his experiences um, and how he is really integrating climate and ESG, but we're going to focus, I think, a little bit on climate today into JP Morgan Chase's all of their business lines. And so Rama, I'd like just to start, because there are a lot of people who are listening who care but may not be focused in this area. You had more than 20 years at JP Morgan and a lot of different roles. How did those experience sort of shape your current role and enable you to head this? Center for Carbon Transition.
2: Thank you, thanks, Suze, for having me. Thank you, Aaron. Sorry for the embarrassingly long bio. Maybe I should cut it short. Even I couldn't really listen to all of it. Look, so the, the uh, I've been, you're right. I've been at JP twenty plus years now, and the I've had a few different roles, but a common theme across all of those have been the need to reinvent myself to some extent. Again, the roles that I've had have needed me to go figure out a new emerging client issue and then find solutions that we as a bank could offer to them. So I've always had the benefit of learning new things along the way. And what that's really taught me is, first of all, before you offer advice to others, you have to get deep in the subject and so surround yourself with people who are experts in the area. That's been an important part of how the CCT was formed, the Center for Carbon Transition. We have people with a lot more climate expertise than I do. So internally making sure I have the right people and then extending that to external network of experts, the two of you, I count in, in that, obviously, but there are clients, there are others who have spent a fair amount of time understanding how they think about the issues and then mapping that to how JP Morgan could actually help them, right? And what I obviously bring to the table is my long tenure at JP Morgan. I know the organization well. I know what how we function and what problems are really problems that JP Morgan can solve versus what's not within our bailiwick, right? So that I have a fairly good understanding of. So combining that has been the, the, both the challenge and the exciting part of this, this role with CCT. Last thing I'll say again, as with every group I've been part of over the years at JP Morgan, this thing is clearly a team sport, right? It's not about just being a one-person um, band where I'm going out and trying to help people. All by myself, it's making sure we work across the firm. We are a big firm. We have close to 300,000 people at J.P. Morgan across multiple business lines, the investment bank, the commercial bank, the asset management business, the retail business, etc. So making sure that we bring all of the right people in and offer our clients advice that's holistic and spans the entire spectrum, that's been really the what I've been trying to build here at J.P. Morgan.
0: And just to follow on a question I've never asked you, was CCT your idea and then you built the team? Or did JP Morgan decide we needed this and then ask you to head it?
2: Yeah, no, I don't think I can claim any credit for coming up with the idea. It was, I think, around 2019 and 2020. Time frame 2019 is when we as a firm spent a lot of time thinking about where we stood at that point in time on the topic of I think ESG broadly, but I would say more really focused on climate. Mm-hmm. Had experts and groups within the firm, our sustainability group has been around for a long time. We've had an ENS risk group for a long time. But it felt like we were not really making the topic central to how we engage with our clients. And, you know, our client-facing organization, our bankers, our sales people, we're not quite using this as an important aspect on which to engage with clients. Right? am again, that's a broad stroke statement, of course, in certain areas they were. So we felt the need in 19 that we needed to change it. The realization we had was financial strategy, business strategy, and ESG strategy were merging across all industrial sectors, including for financial services. So we could not be thinking of these in silos and needed to have a central place where we could think about the J.P. Morgan business strategy and our strategy around climate holistically. So our business strategy is informed by our climate aspirations and our climate aspirations are informed by our business strategy, right? So that was the realization we arrived at in 19. I was asked to uh, lead the team in 2020. We publicly talked about it, I think, in the fall of 20, summer of 2020 is when we started really talking about in the public domain. But yeah, so I've run the group since inception, but I take almost no credit for the formation of the group.
0: I'm sure you had so input, but that's why I was so impressed when I met you, because in fact, Aaron and I work with a lot of investors and a lot of companies in this space. And you're right. The issue is it's siloed or it is viewed as because ESG started 20, 25 years ago and then was bled into really CSR. It was viewed as good stuff on the side. And that leads you to relying on philanthropic capital, where in fact, this has to be embedded in the products and services and the mainstream operations of everybody including JP Morgan Chase and that leads me to my second question you are focused on this and one of my big takeaways from climate week last week was that when we started on this journey in the first climate week everybody said hey we have a little bit of philanthropic capital over here and we have a little government capital over here and we have a gulf trillions of dollars that needs to be <laughs> invested in the form of private capital. And what I was really struck by, I haven't had a chance to talk to Aaron, was that we still have that huge divide. And we still have the needs are even greater and the amount of private capital that needs to be deployed for climate solutions is, you know, as large, if not larger, than it ever has been. What are, from your perspective, I'll ask both sides of it, what are the barriers that you see? And I actually was talking to Kat about this yesterday. What are the barriers that you see at J.P. Morgan? And then what are the solutions that CCT and J.P. Morgan and other financial institutions can provide to try to bridge this gap?
2: Yeah, look, I think, in fact, I've been hearing this term, the value of debt, since the day I got into the space, three, three and a half years, and it still exists. But to make the obvious point, I think look, all investors are driven by the risk-reward framework. And there is a kind of a risk reward continuum that different investors fall in, right? There, some might be in the end where they're willing to take a lot of risk, but expect a lot of reward on. And there might be other investors who don't want to take a lot of risk and are willing to settle for the lower reward, right? So there is this continuum that different investors fall in. If you extend the logic, you could say even even philanthropies and the government for sure falls somewhere in the same continuum where reward for them might be pursuing a certain policy objective, right? If you think of that as reward, as opposed to the traditional financial reward that financial investors want, you could say everyone falls on this continuum somewhere. What I have observed, I think we've all observed, is there seems to be this discontinuity somewhere along the way in the risk-reward continuum where it seems like the perception is the risk is too high for the reward that is on offer. And that's where a lot of projects, ideas seem to come and then not be able to proceed. And so that's, again, that is an observation we have all made. The solutions are to either juice up the reward or reduce the risk, right, when you are at that stage. And I think the IRA does a pretty meaningful job of increasing the reward. I think it is absolutely a massive catalyst. There are other things, other programs that the government has, loan guarantees, et cetera, which provide, or 1st loss capital, which provide a de-risking mechanism. So again, getting to the same point. So I think the role of public funds is quite important in this. That's one. Philanthropies likewise have a role to play. They can, even though they might be, as you said, just a quarter of 1% of capital markets, it's still capital that can play a catalytic role where you are, what we need is, plus loss capital or really junior capital that needs to be that needs to be deployed perhaps in small quantum, but is necessary to bring in the crowd and the other market return seeking capital. So putting those two things together in the right fashion is something we spent a lot of time on. How do you bring in the different investors, again, whether they're public, whether they're private, whether they are philanthropies or grant-making organizations or returning-seeking organizations, how do you piece those together in the right manner to build a capital structure that works for a particular situation? That's an area where, again, somebody like JP Morgan has a lot to offer because that's what we do. That's what we've been doing in a variety of other markets around the world. I would say that's massive. Other policy actions, again, we can talk about carbon tax and things like that all day long, but those would obviously be other mechanisms to bridge the gap the again the way i think about it somewhat simplistically is where where the, this the reason why this exists first of all is because we even had the luxury of time to test out technologies and ideas in national labs and universities etc which is the national the natural progression uh, for other areas but we're trying to compress all that and saying somebody had an idea and tomorrow we want to go raise capital build the first-of-a-kind model to test the idea, and then we need to scale it, right? We're trying to compress all of that, and that's what creates the issue in the first place. And uh, I do think public policy and public funding and philanthropies have a massive role to play, but they cannot absolutely do the, the work by themselves. Putting together the private capital in the right manner alongside it is where, again, I think the solutions lie and is where I, I spend a fair amount of my time on.
0: With, with probably for the house and for your clients is my understanding. I'll, I'll just say there are some initiatives that for 10 years plus have been trying to prove the science experiment. You take the national, you do take the national labs, you take Rocky Mountain Institute, you take the prime collective, you take breakthrough and there are they're, they're technologies in all kinds of stages. One thing I have noticed is because the the decarbonization requires such systems change. It is not just the technology, it's all of the systems. The example I give is carbon sequestering cement. We have it, it works, it can be produced at scale. You can tell me whether it's economic. I am told, I'm just the lawyer, I'm told it can be economic. And then when I ask a renewable energy developer who now you know, with the benefit of all the regulation has to report on their emissions. And it may be between seven and nine years after they're operational that they're break even because of all the energy used to produce the panels, the everything else, and they could use carbon sequestering cement. The answer I'm giving about why they haven't is because the contractors won't use it and the contractors won't use it because the insurance companies won't insure it. I think that goes to your point. We, while the technology has been proven, we have some issues like with direct air capture getting to economics. Even when there are economics, it needs time for the system to catch up. Is that is that what you are referring to? And I would love to know. Does J.P. Morgan also take on issues like that, looking through the scale or electrification? The fact that we need a hundred thousand electricians in the U.S. that we don't have. So if even everybody went out and electrified, but
2: back absolutely. Up. I think that's a. I think there are two issues, perhaps. Right again, and the. In some, issue one dominates, in another, maybe issue two dominates. Issue one is that of green premium. Is it economic or not? Whatever this green commodity is, green cement or whatever green electricity, whatever the case might be. And in some cases, it is economic. So the green premium is is non-existent. In others, it's not, right? And But even in situations where it might be economic or close to being economic, where the green premium is quite low, there is all these kind of dependencies, right? Where again, yeah, the cement industry, as Aaron said, I am a civil engineer from the background, so I have some familiarity. It is a pretty regional market, right? Even if some guy in Boston has cracked the code to make green cement, doesn't mean the project in Phoenix, Arizona, is going to immediately have access to it, right? So there are lots of things, and in the insurance aspect you brought up, right? That's a real issue because insurance codes perhaps have not been updated to allow for these. The green cements to be part of the code and specs, and somebody else is to sign off and take on the liability, right? So how that kind of how do you kind of work through the entire system and make sure everything catches up? That's the again typically takes multiple decades that we are trying to compress here very um, quickly. And I think that's again whether it's taking policy positions, whether actually providing capital, I think that's something we at Morgan, we think about all of that absolutely.
0: Yeah, and you've been quite innovative. And one of the things I know where you've been innovative is with this climate compass technology. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how you are using it?
2: So the um, carbon compass was, is the brand name we are using to talk about JP Morgan's um, trajectory um, with our financed emissions. So again, we have a $4 trillion balance sheet, give or take, a little over a trillion dollars of wholesale uh, balance sheet. So we have a big balance sheet, right? And uh, we started this journey in the fall of 2020 when we said that we are going to take all the carbon intensive sectors that we finance, either directly finance or facilitate financing for, measure the carbon footprint, aggregate that up to a JP Morgan portfolio level, and then start putting 2030 interim targets with the goal eventually to be aligned with net zero in 2050. And Carbon Compass is the umbrella framework that we've been using since. We started the journey by... Putting targets on three sectors: oil and gas, power, and autos. We have since done um, iron and steel, cement, and aviation, and we will be releasing two more sectors in uh, later this year. So we would have covered the majority of the carbon-intensive sectors, not yet all of them. And the idea was we needed not just 2030 targets, but we needed a decision framework that actually gave us some ability to influence our own light path to meet our targets, right? And so I think pretty much every financial institution at this point has some targets for 2030, right? Um, The details might differ. The sectors they may have picked might be different. The metric might be different. But pretty much every financial institution of some global standing has uh, done something similar to us. Where I would say we have probably gone further is in creating a a framework to actually allocate our capital pursuant to the methodology. At a bank like ours, capital allocation decisions are, it's like multivariate calculus to begin with, right? We have to assess so many different things and then make a decision. Now we are throwing in yet another variable and saying, what is the carbon footprint of this particular client and this particular transaction and how does that impact the targets that they themselves may have set for themselves? And we have set for ourselves, And does participating in this transaction or not participating in this transaction have a material impact on their target or ours, right? That's part of the decision-making framework. We talked about it a little bit in our climate report last year. We'll likely talk about it more. We've essentially developed a mechanism to score companies on their carbon footprint, much like Mm -hmm. we would score companies based on credit profile. We call it our carbon assessment framework. We're going through sector by sector. And the idea, again, is to be very programmatic right not just you know of course the inputs to come up with a score are both quantitative and qualitative by definition right not everything is measurable at this point but once we have a score the decision making is meant to be somewhat clear right this is the score and this is the impact let's be clear on how we want to proceed from that point on right so that governance mechanism around it is something we spent a lot of time building over the last couple years I would say and that again, we have published progress once last year to our existing targets. We're gonna publish again progress later this year. I would say that the progress that we have shown so far and more importantly, the confidence we have in the future light path is all because we've built, we've taken the time to build the, the foundation and the governance mechanism.
0: I'm like Pavlov's dog. You say governance or you say fiduciary duties, and I get all excited. But yeah, you're, and we can talk, we'll talk in a second about one of the things I have been, there are issues with all of the regulations coming. One of the good things is most of them on climate risk are following TCFD, which is just as much about just with accounting on numbers, how you got there and your governance and scaffolding as it is the actual result. And it's really good to hear. Before, and, and just for those in the audience, uh, we have a good group. If you want to start, there's a Q&A at the bottom. If there are questions that you have for Rama, please feel free to, to start putting them in there. I have several more, but we'd love to hear from you. So Rama, I have been in the room recently for a lot of discussion about, and again, I'm a corporate lawyer fascinated with accounting, the accounting treatment Of carbon. And I think what some people have identified as issues with the the GHG protocol and scope three and double counting and would love your thoughts. There has been the introduction of alternative means of doing balance sheet carbon accounting, including environmental liability management. And I sit there and I have been watching this debate. To me, some of it is a bit moot because the, everybody is following the GHG protocol, and particularly we'll get to the regulations of California and the CSRD and all of these jurisdictions who are also following the GHG protocol. But how, what are JP Morgan Chase's views on this, number one? Number two, how does it fit within your own rubric that you've just described in terms of the methodology that you are using to measure?
2: Yeah, perhaps I'll start by saying, I'll say it's my viewpoints. And look, I think GG protocol has been around for two decades, the I believe. And he, like many things that have been around for a period of time, I do feel like the current use cases were not perhaps envisioned when the protocol was put in place. And we've built it up with variety of a patchwork of solutions to make it, make it usable for a variety of use cases that just, I think sort of criticism of the protocol, but it just is, I think a factual observation. I think your point about scope free and double counting is clearly real and is, is an issue with the GHG protocol. It's again, like with everything related to climate, there are no easy answers. Again, saying that ignore scope 3 completely would also not be an appropriate answer for our, our carbon compass methodology, as and as was talking about for oil and gas. We do, in fact, have scope 3 as part of our targets. When it's 85 90% of the lifecycle emissions, it feels incomplete to ignore it. I don't, I'm not sure whether there is a perfect answer. Carbon accounting is such an important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. Having a, a framework that's sensible and Comparable is an absolutely necessary in you know, a piece of the puzzle. I don't think we are at a place that is satisfactory in my mind. So we are all trying to figure out better ways. I think the emissions liability management. If you're thinking of the same, if I'm thinking of what you're thinking of, this notion that every supplier passes on goods or services to their customer along with an environmental liability or an emissions number. And so everybody keeps track of it. And then whoever is left holding the net liability at the end has to figure out a way to... defeat it, yeah. I think that's a very elegant way to think about it. Question is, what do you do with the net liability? Is there, a, again, a taxation system that you, you impose on net liability? A VAG type system, right? There is There are some parallels, the way I understand it. That could be interesting. Or do you say that... If you have a net liability, you have to come up with that net liability can live for a very long time. What are you going to do about it, right? Is this do you set up like like a, a trust, right? Like a defined benefit pension plan trust or a nuclear decommissioning trust. And so you've got to start putting assets into this trust if you're going to sit on undefeased liabilities, right? And how do you size it? Who manages it? Are there, again, incentives to fund the trust, right? Can we be creative about how do you set it up so that it doesn't immediately take a company that has no escape mechanism and forces them down to unviable business model, right? You have to give people an escape file, but it has to be done in a way that there is a long-term goal, which is, again, every, the emissions anyone puts out has to be compensated by the value they are creating, right that's the equation that we have everything we're doing the value we are creating has to be larger than the emissions we are putting out that's at the end of the day that's what is important for us to get to where we need to how do you keep track of all of that i think it's an unsolved question i do like this the emissions liability management framework as a starting point lots of details need to be figured out
0: And it also, my understanding is that the AELM helps manage for some of those time issues. In a given year, you have emissions, you then offset uh, credits, which is a whole lot. (laughs) I I keep hearing that most, there are issues with the methodology and issues with most of the credits out there, but you you have to balance it. But it doesn't, the current GHG protocol doesn't balance in terms of time, because when you emit, those emissions are... (laughs) very long term. And then, but then the flip side, what are the assets you can buy in to offset the liability, whether that would spark the sort of more, I would say, meaningful change in terms of sequestration and direct air capture and all that, as opposed to furthering the credit market, I I think is also some of the impetus behind the people who are pushing for ELM.
2: Makes sense. Uh, Again, as a digression, perhaps Uh, the carbon markets are There's definitely open questions, but for what it's worth, my view is they are a necessary part of the solution in the long run. We just have to get past the current situation where there is reputational questions, quality questions. Again, who's the scorekeeper, right? And do we trust the scorekeepers to keep score appropriately, et cetera. Lots of open questions. I do think we need to get past them. And I've said this in, in other forums. I believe eventually carbon will be a financial asset people will know how to value it people it will change hands like a financial asset and we need to get to that point and again i don't think we need to be shy i know that it can get a continent controversial and is what it is i am a believer that a piece of the solution is going to come through the carbon assets market and we just need that market to be better functioning more well, let's
0: turn to compliance. Actually, why we the speakers were almost late for this webinar because we were discussing compliance um, ahead of time. It's very interesting to me. ESG has been around for 20 years, and there's been a lot of self-regulation, voluntary standards, and now all of a sudden the regulators around the world have woken up, and there's now. A lot of compliance on the climate side in terms of disclosure and then corporate action, but let's focus on on the disclosure. I would love your and, and JP Morgan's views on I, I call them sort of the two bookends, which in some ways have mooted whatever will come out of the SEC, which is CSRD and the EU and and the California rules and for those of you who are joining who are not as familiar just to give you a little preview when i talk to people about csrd they look at the rules and say oh those are just for the big european issuers and i say they have scope 3 emissions and almost all of their compliance relates to all of their customer suppliers anybody with whom they have a contract so if you're a private company operating in delaware and you've got a contract with a large european issuer you're going to have to comply you're gonna because you're gonna to have to provide the data and disclose and with within a certain methodology to the your Euro, large European issuers and then on the California side the California rules we're expecting to be signed by Newsom any moment now on both risk and disclosure are very far-reaching to anybody with Nexus to California Rama
2: yeah look I, I your thoughts that <laughs> yeah, topic better than me so I'll caveat my response with that Look, I I can plead both sides of this, right? On one side, as you said, he's been around for 20 years and here come disclosure rules, long wait, or I could say seat bills were legalized 50 years after the car was invented, right? So perhaps you need more time to figure out what the, you need time to experiment, figure out what works, what doesn't work before you constrain things with lots of compliance requirements. So I could plead the case on both. Both sides. You mentioned CSRD, you mentioned California, which I don't think the governor has signed into law, but I assume he will, given the what he said. There are, don't forget, we as a global forum, we have compliance regimes all around the globe, right? There are Asian markets where there are different compliance regimes, there are South American markets where there are different compliance regimes. So that is a first order problem, that there is this variety of compliance regimes, which are not necessarily consistent with each other, And the burden they will put on companies, right? Across the board for companies. And we have the luxury of hiring more people, staffing up a compliance department and taking the issue head on, which we are. But not everyone that delivers a private company may not have the luxury, but now the burden is on them as well, right? So tricky one, again, more disclosure from my seat, more disclosure is helpful. I can make smarter decisions, right? How we are allocating the JP Morgan capital, right? more information will absolutely be helpful in us making smarter decisions and allocating capital. So yes, disclosure is important. I wish it was done in a bit more coordinated manner around the globe so that we don't have to uh, scramble. And sometimes the disclosures might actually be contradictory or the requirements might be contradictory to each other. And then how do we resolve those? It's It's an important one. And the last fear I have is again this, folks who might have been doing voluntary disclosures out of good intent, let's say, do these the required disclosures now almost create a perverse incentive for more lawsuits against those guys? Because there is no way that voluntary disclosure schemes they were adopting is going to be exactly the same as the required disclosures. And is that really exposing people with good intentions and folks who might have actually been first movers to increase risk of lawsuits? So there are all of these kind of unfortunate, unintended consequences which we'll have to live through. Again, for us at JP Morgan, obviously we'll comply with every requirement, any regulator, any legal system imposes on us around the globe, right? That's cost of doing business for us. Again, from a very narrow um, perspective, to me, in my seat allocate trying to allocate JP Morgan capital, great, but it's not going to be without pain and agony for a lot of people involved.
0: I mean, the good news is that the ISSB, SANSB
2: became part of the ISSB,
0: the ISSB under the IFRS, that's the International Sustainable Standards, Sustainability Standards Board under the International Financial Reporting most regulators are generally following that. So one of the things that it's a good place to start, and then you can figure out where the deviances are. But one of the things I wanted to just as a follow-up ask you, there's the internal compliance, then there's compliance in terms of how, how you have to get information from your counterparties on climate now, as you do with human rights and cyber and privacy. What about on the deal side? As you are doing deals and with scope three, so you're lending money, you're investing, you're serving it as an advisor, and you you then take ownership of the data they provide. How is it changing, or is it yet changing, sort of deal-making and deal-structuring? Let's, even outside of sort of climate and renewable energy, let's just say in in the steel sector or in oil and gas or in anything...
2: Look, I think again. um, I'm of the firm belief that this is the broader topic. Is it is a driver of capital flows globally, right across every sector. It's not an energy issue only. It's not a financial services issue only. It is absolutely an issue in the steel industry, or in the technology industry, or in the consumer products industry, right? And I would say, even within the last 12-18 months, the prevalence of thinking about a climate issue or an ESG issue in the context of m has skyrocketed, right? Again, not as a check-the-box, on the side exercise, but really what assets and liabilities am I truly buying? And what is it going to... Am I valuing those appropriately, right? Am I buying an asset to, but that comes with some embedded liabilities that I... Haven't historically thought about, and maybe I should think about that, right? So, that I would say is absolutely a driver of strategic deal making more and more, right? Getting the carbon intensive sector, absolutely. But surprisingly, even in the less obvious sectors where um, carbon intensity is perhaps not top of mind, because when most CEOs, if you are a best in class company in your sector, this movie is playing in some other neighborhood, but it's going to come to you at some point. And again, if you are definitely the best in class company in your sector, you want to be ahead of the curve. You don't want to, again, the way at least I think about it is if you react to it after the market fully bakes all the price in, it's too late. You're paying full, paying full freight. The best management teams want to be right? Yes, I think as a general matter away from JP Morgan, I, I, my observation is this is driving strategic activity. From a J.P. Morgan perspective, we think about it all the time, right? Especially for those sectors where we have targets. Again, the good news is we are, by definition, we are dealing with our clients, right? So we have an access to them. We have a relationship with them. We've tried to be as transparent as we can be with them on what is the information we need and why. And what our philosophy is, what is it that we are trying to achieve. For us, again, we are in the privileged position that we don't need to we can actually have a conversation and get the right information from the right people at our clients and have a meaningful dialogue. And we do it all the time. That's a big part of the carbon compass kind of you know framework, if you will, is that client engagement. It happens almost on a daily basis where deal comes in, somebody says, look, but we need to evaluate this one aspect that may not seem obvious, but it's important for the overall deal. Let's go back to the client and kind of ask those questions. It happens all the time
0: let's talk about let's just drill down a little bit more those sectors that have been lagging in terms of decarbonization steel cement transportation a- aviation is that are you spending more of your time there and i i ask cuz i was one of the things so last week after climate week i was discouraged having been to climate week now for <laughs> more than a decade that i felt like i was in a the groundhog day people were talking about the same thing over and over again without any real progress on the other hand i heard really smart people saying yeah we got renewable energy we got that we're actually focused on green steel and like in 2 weeks i'm going to pittsburgh who knew like i mean i you know is that where you're spending more of your time and what are some of the specific solutions or (laughs) the J.P. Morgan secret sauce you're bringing to those harder to decarbonize industries?
2: Yeah, there are clearly, there are some sectors which are harder to decarbonize. Transportation, I might say, is a tale of many cities. You have auto transportation, which is actually decarbonizing, I think, at a pace that I'm surprised by, to be honest. If you go back to our autos, was one of the first sectors we put a target on. And if you look at our progress, we are actually making fantastic progress largely because the sector is making fantastic progress, largely because I think consumers are asking for cars that are electric, et cetera. Steel, cement, aviation, all of those have, I think, horny issues. Back to what I was saying a few minutes back. In some sectors, it's truly a technical issue, right? There needs to just be more technical advancement that needs to happen before a solution can be scaled. And... And in some, it's a bit more of a financial issue. Right? So in my mind, for example, if you look at aviation, I think a big part of the solution is going to be sustainable aviation. With you may not be the entire solution, but it's going to be a big part of the solution. And I think the IEA scenario is all envision that as well. To me, SAF, yes, there are some technical issues. There are some feedstock issues. But the way I think about it, those are second order to the financial issue of who's going to pay for that. Who's going to pay for SAF being more expensive than jet fuel? Traditional jet fuel. Is it the developer? Well, probably not. Is it the airlines or is it the end customer? Right? And the reality is the sector as a whole, the airline sector, which are buying the SAF in the first instance, they are not the most capitalized industry in the world, right? They are typically stretch balance sheets, it's a pretty capital-intensive business to begin with, profit margins are not very high, so you don't have, it's not the perfect recipe for absorbing more costs, right? And so you're stuck with, and the investors don't want to invest. that's blocking investments into the SAF market, because investors are like, oh, hang on, if the airline doesn't want to take the green premium, who's taking it? Am I taking it by investing in this technology, right? Or is there a mechanism to pass it on to the customer? Is it even the right thing to pass it on to every customer equally or are there solutions there? We know corporate travel is quite distinct from personal travel. Is there a mechanism here to say lots of corporate travel is undertaken by employees of companies who have ambitious plans and have better balance sheets and have the intent, show the intent to absorb some extra costs. Is there a ways, can you develop a mousetrap which says I'm going to essentially stuff that green premium to that channel, right? And to me, that's a financial question. And that's one as an example, where we're spending time, can we bring in the various players in the ecosystem, figure out a mousetrap that first tries to reduce the green premium, right? And then two, sends the green premium down the channel where it can actually be absorbed without creating lots of ripple effects, right? Means that's one end of the spectrum. You look at things like hydrogen or green cement. I think there are still technical issues that need to be solved. Right? It's not clear before we even come to the financial issues. The technical issues will have to really bring down the cost of the green commodity versus the alternative. Then we can talk about creative financial engineering to figure out how to go the last mile. But we are spending, to I guess answer your question, we are spending time in these sectors. In fact, I would say personally, I'm spending more time in these other sectors than in for perhaps energy, where I think the issues are better understood. Companies are all spending a lot of time. They have an you know, army of people thinking about it. Banks have an army of people thinking about it. It's this harder to abate sectors or sectors that are a little further away from the, the public debate where we are spending a fair amount of time on.
0: Yeah, that's, again, from Climate Week, I was heartened that there were people who were really focusing on the, some people refer to it, euphemistically as brown to green, but spending more time on those sectors that haven't had as much attention. I don't know. I think the litigation risk, climate litigation, which is just, and I commend to anybody who's on the work at Columbia Law School, the Sabin Center, and tracking the carbon litigation, which is going up exponentially, and the carbon majors, and you have the energy companies, but most of the companies in the areas you mentioned, the steel, the transport, the cement, oh, listed the big ones on on the list of carbon majors and the person the litigation that is growing and rising where individuals and organizations are suing those carbon majors for damages and if you're Pakistan and you've got three trillion of damages as a cement company if you're three percent of global emissions and you can go down to two percent that's actually meaningful in terms of your risk and exposure and so I'm not sure it's impacting yet the corporate action, but I think it it will. It's the old adage, I don't have to outrun the bear, I just have to outrun you. Um, And I'm I'm interested to see how that sparks behavior. So I've got two more questions before I turn it back over to Erin. First is, this climate week, we were a little more than a year out from the IRA. And I would love for your views and JP Morgan's views on how the IRA has sparked additional action and investment, and where it's fallen short.
2: Yeah, I'm a big fan of the IRA, so uh, I will start with that. I think it's uh, we keep track; others keep track of invest, you know, investment decisions that have been announced with an explicit tie to the IRA, and I think that number is well over 100 billion dollars today, and growing pretty fast. So, I think again, the objectives of the IRA to really excellent capital formation, I think, are being achieved. Again, these are investment announcements at this point. Obviously, the actual dollars have to flow. It's a long road, but nevertheless, I think the, as I said, I think it's a big catalyst. Hits a lot of the technologies where we've been talking about where the help is needed to bridge that risk reward gap, whether it's SAF or hydrogen or wind or solar, of course, right? So that's great. The quantum of dollars is substantial. Obviously, we are blessed in this country to have the ability, the balance sheet is, I said, sovereign, to, to put a lot of dollars to work at the same time. So I'm also gratified to see that being put to use. So lots of good things. The, If I have to nitpick, the reality is the mechanism of transmitting the dollars to the relevant end stakeholder is through this tax equity market and could. The, t- the mechanisms have been devised a little better, I think, perhaps, right? The reality is overall tax collection, corporate tax collections in this country are, call it $300, $350 billion a year, right? You're working with that tax base to absorb a lot of these tax credits that will be generated, right? Could there have been other mechanisms, easier ways to make sure we don't have to jump through multiple hoops? That's, again, it's really, I would consider nitpicky, the comment, than a substantive comment. The transferability provision that's embedded in the IRA is a massive, massive solution to that. The direct pay option is another elegant way to get to that. I think as we are all we're all spending, I'm sure other folks in the ecosystem are spending time figuring this out, as are we. We will come up with certain mousetraps that kind of optimize for allocating the available tax dollars to the issue at hand. And I'm sure we'll see evolutions of it perhaps the limitation on just single transferability will be relaxed at some point i don't know I'm speculating but that's i think it's perfectly fine to to now learn from what we have in place and evolve and tweak as we go forward so but so really to me ira has been very important i think our clients when i talk to them all acknowledge the importance of it. it goes a long way perhaps not the entire way but it goes a long way and it's going to set forth it has set forth i think a pretty amazing capital formation era that we will probably be living through for the next many years.
0: And just before I get to the final question, we do have another audience question. The ICAO and the IMO, has that, those commitments and their the discussions around carbon neutral growth moved the needle on SAF at all,
2: the sustainable aviation f-
0: fuel or not? I think...
2: Again it's taking look if you look at the airline industry that I think pretty much every major airline, global airline now has a commitment towards using. Yeah, SAP. Yeah. I think the most typical commitment is 10 percent of their fuel by 2030 will be SAF. So it's spurred action right Lots of airlines are thinking about of course fleet modernizations and efficiency gains coming from that is also helpful so people are upgrading fleets. that's great. But the issue is, but if you look at the U.S., I think I forget what the quantum is, but I think the U.S. has a SAF target by 2030, which is a substantial number. And I'm just not sure the availability from where we are today. It's hard to see where that availability of SAF is going to come from. And that's related question: Who's going to pay for it? Right? We haven't solved it, so it's made all of the the noise has made it a top of mind issue which is the first step. But I think the solution set is still incomplete. So we'll have to work through that.
0: So my final question, of course, you know where I'm going, is how... There's been a lot of innovation in technology. One of the interesting things to me over the last 20 years is there's been a lot of innovation in the corporate form and scaffolding and in finance to address these issues. Again, just embed within mainstream capital markets, positive positive movement on climate, whether it's new corporate form, whether it is sustainability-linked bonds. How much is JPMorgan Chase using or availing themselves of those you mentioned the stack deck where you're putting with, you're aggregating first loss capital with mainstream capital. How much are you using those, given the fact that they were an idea 20 years ago and now they seem to be more mainstream?
2: Look, I think we are really going through the toolkit and looking at everything, I would say, in honest. And there is the, what are we doing for JP Morgan question? There is, what are we doing to help our clients question? And they are not independent questions. It's the same toolkit we are dipping into. I think what a fact pattern that we see time and again is you have a big company that has a legacy business that might have a, a carbon intensity and you they may have a newer business that is, let's say, not carbon intensive or maybe even negative carbon, right? Question is, how do you bring appropriate level of capital at the right cost to these two businesses that are under one corporate umbrella, right? And that fact pattern exists in really every sector at this point in time. So there, I think it's also a fact pattern that is, I think, ripe for some interesting structuring. You can take out the, let's call it the green business, right? The carbon neutral or perhaps even carbon negative business. And then either raise capital at that entity. You can think about different types of corporate formation for that entity. Could that be a PVC? Now we have, obviously, examples of public PVCs, right? Do you go that route? So there are lots of interesting things you could be doing, especially in the context of green assets that are embedded within companies that are conglomerates and have assets, which might not be green, right? I'll be spending a lot of time on that I we all worked together on this IPO a couple of years back, which we call the sustainability principles and objectives or SPO using again, the capital markets to come up with clever ways to form capital for interesting companies. Like all goods in that example is something we spend a lot of time in. We've had the exogenous shock of a macro headwind that's hit us in the last 12, to 18 months as interest rates have gone up. right? Capital markets activity has gone down quite substantially in the last 12, to 18 months relative to, let's say, 2021. So we have had a little bit of lull, I would say. It's not a bad thing because it's allowed us to think about what else could we be ready with when the markets reopen, which obviously they, we knew they would. And so we have we're very excited actually going back to the IPO market with interesting ideas, going back to this notion of how do you use things like a PBC to to again raise capital and differentiate assets that actually have a differentiated characteristic to begin with, right? So I'm actually that's one area where I'm actually super excited and hoping that we will work together on more and more.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Rama, and I'm gonna turn it back over to Aaron. I can't believe an hour went by. I have so much more to talk about. Fortunately, I see you Friday.
2: That is true.
1: Great discussion. And I agree. I've I've got a bunch of questions. I wish I could have lobbed into the mix. But thank you so much. And Rama, not a lot of time. So I want to say, A, thank you, not only for this, but all the great work you're doing. And B, I think you made a really important point that is easy to lose sight of because the energy transition is one of, as you said, massive and on a time scale, I don't think we have ever seen in human history. And so there is the big shining light that comes from a heating world, which unfortunately we're seeing accelerate, and then all of the really deep and thoughtful and complex work that you've described. So we've got to find a way to keep our eyes on the big goal while getting in it to, to the really serious questions that require serious thought. And I think you, you gave us a lot of insight on how to do that. So thank you. Again, this was the uh, 10th in a series, really impressive discussions. I always learn a lot and I hope everyone else did as well. Be on the lookout for the announcement for our uh, October episode, which is likely to be the 24th uh, of October. That's what we're aiming for. And thank you again for joining us today. Please make
0: sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.